You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one podcast for all things communication, advertising, and marketing. I'm your host, Ted Lau, award-winning agency owner, podcaster, and family guy. Today on our show, we have John Kay from Realize Strategies. Over the last 20 years, John Kay has held senior and executive positions in both the private and public sectors and supported projects spanning social services, real estate, insurance, finance, food and beverage, education, arts, tourism, and more. As a principal consultant at Realize Strategies, John assists executive clients in driving sustainable, transformative organizational change through strategy, governance, culture, and business model innovation. As CEO of Realize Strategies, he supports and empowers his team in unlocking their potential and creativity to strengthen and support their clients. John serves as chair on several nonprofit and co-op boards across the country and seeks inspiration in people-centered businesses locally and abroad. John, welcome. Thank you, Ted. It's great to be here. Yeah. So maybe you could start just by telling us a little bit about you and your origin story and how you got to where you got. Well, that's a great question, Ted. You know, I often say now that my origin story is kind of like one of those design squiggles that you see, one of those innovation squiggles. Yeah, it, yeah. It's kind of messy and it takes a little while to get the through line. And that's kind of my story. You know, I started out, God, as an undergraduate in philosophy and English literature, needed a job, uh, <laughs> partly because at the time my uh, my partner was pregnant. So I started out in government communications and then uh, worked my way through some some stints in the public service and into the private sector, working uh, in a multi multi business holding company, and a little bit more work in the private sector, some consulting work there, and then uh, in 2012 I joined Realize Strategies and have been on that journey ever since. And as you said in your intro, Ted, I've done lots of work both locally, nationally, and globally on a variety of boards. So my story is a little bit of, as you said, a little bit of business, a little bit of private sector, and a lot of work uh, at the point where purpose and profit or purpose and business intersect. So you basically, you're a consultant, and, and what problems do you solve? Great question, Ted. So it's a pretty broad range. In our organization, we have basically two parts to what we do. We really focus quite a bit on helping organizations unlock their potential. And that really, that means a couple of things. It means we focus on people, on the theory that people are the thing that empower any business. So, you know, you can have the best product, the best service, the best whatever. But if you don't have a team behind it, it really doesn't matter how good your product is because you're not going to go anywhere. You need people to sell. You need people to tell your story. So we really focus on the people side of things as a way to you know do everything from Unlocking strategy, making sure people are aligned behind strategy, making sure that there's a really engaging employee experience in organizations. So a lot of what we do is what we kind of traditionally call human resources consulting or organizational design and development consulting. And, you know, again, that's everything from helping to design an employee experience to helping to, to hire to make sure you get the right people in place, aligning from top to bottom. And then we also do some work kind of on the other side of that, which is all in the areas of where finance and strategy and governance intersect with the organization. So big chunk is is that HR work. And then, like I said, another chunk that fits in there. And on the side, I do some work as well. I have a small CPA firm. So I do some work with organizations as well in areas like 
you know, figuring out tax structures that will allow leaders of purpose-driven businesses to achieve their dreams. So you have a CPA designation as well. I have a CPA and an MBA as well, yeah. You, oh, wow. You, you were so free on time that you decided to go get a CPA designation and, and go start a firm. Good for you. That's amazing. I've had the CPA designation for quite a while, Ted. I designated in 2000 and, oh God, what was it now? Eight. But uh, it was only recently that I decided to start a firm. And it was largely for a number of reasons. I was you know, working with a lot of small business owners or leaders of, of organizations who said, you know, I'm really struggling because I don't think I have anybody who really understands my story, who really understands my business. And I work with accountants who can tell me, you know, this number, this number, that number, but I really don't understand how it all fits together. And I just really don't feel like I'm getting someone who understands that really critical intersection between I need to develop a solid business, but I also need, I have a purpose in the community that's beyond profit. I need someone who can help me understand how this fit together. So it led me to think a lot about the real problem is numbers are a story. And if you understand the language, you can tell the story. So that's what the firm is really all about. It's, it's about helping business owners understand the language of finance and accounting and tax and all that stuff, but in a way that helps them understand how do I achieve my dreams? What do I need to do? So, and how do I tell the story through the numbers, through the numbers of my business? Very interesting. Now let's kind of go back to the HR side, because I think that's quite interesting given we've gone through and still continue to go through this phenomenon that we're dubbing the great resignation. And so when you are creating employee packages or employer branding or consulting Mm -hmm. with your clients, what advice do you have for business owners or, you know, executive teams like myself, you know, I I run an agency called Ballistic Arts. We've been in business 20 years, but Mm -hmm. gosh, we've experienced uh, a fair bit of turnover just over the last several years because folks in my world, people are a little transient. They want to try different things, be very creative. And sometimes it's not a money thing. You know, they they actually Mm -hmm. will take another role that's more interesting to them for their career and take a pay cut. And so what advice do you have for those out there listening that are leading a team and trying to keep them retained? Well, the first thing we say is it's the kind of sober advice that there is no silver bullet to the great reset of the great resignation. People are going to move around, just as you said, either because they want to try something different, they want to move to a place that's cheaper, and you know, in some cases they want to take advantage of digital nomad opportunities. So the first thing you have to kind of accept as table stakes is that that's going to happen. And no matter how great an employer you are, no matter how many things you do, the likelihood that you can stop it completely is pretty unlikely. But that being said, what can you do? And there's a number of things that we tell clients that are also really being borne out by research that's being done globally by organizations like Deloitte. So one is you need to really think about that hybrid structure. You need to think about a permanent change to the way your organization works. And, you know, for an agency like yours, that's probably something you've done for a long time. Pretty easy. We're, we're work from anywhere now. I mean, I got staff from all over the place and just working, vacationing, whatever. And we're just managing time zones these days. Yeah. And that's great. Of course, some employers, this is very, this is a great shock to them. The idea that people work remotely and that in many respects, 
they're less concerned about having the, the thirsty Thursday or the thirsty Friday than they are having time with their kids or the flexibility to, it's a good day in Vancouver, I'd like to go out paddle boarding or whatever. I'd like to take, you know, my work's cut up, I'd like to leave for the, the rest of the day. So understand, number one, you've got to accept and, and really think about how to design a model that is much more flexible than what you might have used in the past. The second is involving your employees in those questions. So not just saying this is what I'm imposing, but working together to organically design. What is a workplace? What's an experience that allows us to fulfill our, you know, our needs to our clients or whatever that might be, but also creates that that much greater ability to flex and recognize that work can be done, you know, at three o'clock in the morning if you want, if that's what works for you, and if it works for your clients or your business. Second thing is looking at investment and in professional development. There's a lot of emerging research right now that says when you invest in professional development, there is a much higher rate of employee retention, a much higher rate of employee engagement. And I think it's on the order in some cases of about 20 to 30 percent is what the research has found. So those are a couple of things we say too. you know, you've got to make your people feel like you're investing in their future. You're training them, but also that you're understanding that that training may actually lead them to leave anyway. Right. Yeah, and that, and you know, we've we've done training. We have found though. Is there is there a tip there with with training where we have folks that have done training and then we're not really sure. Yeah, they took the course, we paid for it, but but how do I measure whether or not that actually you know actually made an impact? Because sometimes I feel like, well, yeah, they took the course. They said they were happy with it, but I don't I don't feel that I'm getting a distinct difference in performance or, or engagement sometimes for that matter. And that's also a great question, Ted, and really tricky. So it, it's a couple of things. One is, is the training relevant to the job need? Is there a likelihood that it's something they can apply directly in your organization when they've done the training? If so, giving them space or giving them an opportunity to show how they can apply that training in a practical way and that it can make some difference. So not necessarily say, okay, you get a bump in salary, you get a bonus because you've done this, but here's a project we'd like you to take on because you've done this piece of training, or we'd like you to be involved in this team because you've now got this training. And we'd really like you to step up and demonstrate what you've learned and how it can contribute to our goals and push us ahead. So again, there's no, there's no magic bullet answers. There's no, you know, easy solutions in any of these things. It's just a lot of, you know, a lot of it comes down to just engaging in a really good dialogue with your employees to try to get that sense of like, we're all in this together. Not everybody gets to make a decision necessarily, but the more that people feel like they have a stake in the game, the greater your chances are of, of keeping people. And, you know, of course, we still have to be sensitive to the fact that inflation rates are spiking. Vancouver is a you know, super unaffordable city and it's not getting any better. And so there is some need to pay attention to the money side. But as you said earlier, that's not often the thing that motivates people to make that decision. All right. Well, thank you very much for for that. Let's let's move to the governance side. So it sounds like you you've done a bit of that, and I did a comms degree, so I have a lot of friends and clients that do government relations or or work in public affairs as, as part of their role in an organization. What have you seen since you know the time that you started to to now? What what has there been a lot of change? Is it more of the same? What what's what's different these days? So it's an interesting question, Ted. I want to uh, just uh, untangle the thread a little bit. I do a fair amount of work in board governance, not so much in government relations. But having said that, I have had my hand in it for the last few years. 
partly through some board work I've done with the BC Co-op Association, which has done a lot of work engaging with the government. In the distant past, I was a political staffer to a cabinet minister in Victoria. So I was kind of on that other side of understanding, you know, what do you need to hear from a stakeholder, from an outsider to convince a government to make a decision? You know, I don't think it's changed so much, except in the fact that more and more and more organizations are now relying on the use of government relations firms or lobbyists that was traditional in the past. It used to be that, you know, you call the minister's office, you made an appointment, and you went and saw them, and that was it. But now you see more and more, there's a belief that, A, you need to professionalize government relations, and B, they're just more and more people who are lobbying governments. And so in order to break through and get your message across, it's really critical to have that additional firepower and also that understanding of how government works. Because I think one of the great mistakes that groups often make, and I'd say it's especially true in things like nonprofit organizations, is that the righteousness of your issues doesn't necessarily carry the day. You know, you can be doing great work in the community, but that's that doesn't mean you're going to get a positive answer. Because, you know, there's a couple of truisms. One is politicians don't get ahead of public opinion. Politicians will act where they think there's public support. And two, and especially nowadays, you really have to line up what you want, what your issues are with the priorities of the government of the day, if you want to have a chance to get anywhere. So if it's way offside with what government priorities are, the likelihood of you getting something is pretty minimal. I mean, unless you've got a huge amount of pressure, you can bring to bear and, you know, you've got uh, you've got 10 friendly reporters on speed dial that you can crank a story out of. So then with regards to, you know, we work through transformative organizational change through strategy. What, what exactly that, does that mean? That sounds like a lot of interesting words and uh, I'm sure it, there, there's a lot of meaning there. But to our audience, what does it mean to you? Yeah, it's a good question, Ted. It sounds like a lot of marketing language, doesn't it? And I admit it was our marketing folks that came up with that language. What it really means, though, is we're trying to help organizations train people to think differently. And in order to be more sustainable, more able to deal with changes both in the internal environment as well as the outside environment, the the macro economy. So it means how do you think about different ways to be nimble and flexible, especially if you're a larger organization? How do you create the kind of muscle memory that allows you to adapt when these unexpected things happen, whether it's a COVID spike or it's inflation or whatever it might be. How do you ensure that in that process of change, you can also bring people along? So again, it depends on the kind of business you're working with. If you're working with a large organization that's board governed, um, private sector, I mean, private or otherwise, it really means having a nimbleness and a capability to think about, okay, Are we constantly keeping an eye on the changing landscape and what are we doing to adjust to it? What kind of changes do we have to make internally so that we don't get caught behind? You know, how do you avoid being Kodak saying, hey, you know, look, we're great. We're the market leader here. And then all of a sudden, digital photography blows you out of the market after, you know, being a leader for many, many years. So we're really trying to say, let's get down to all of the the levers that run an organization, and understand what are those levers, those dials you can turn or you can pull to create that capability of making change rapidly. Do you have any examples? Yeah, well, there's some good questions. I think I sketched out one for you there, Ted, which is just, you know, how do you not be Kodak? 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, with Kodak, I mean, they actually invented, apparently, the, the digital camera. They just tucked it away because they were they didn't have the foresight to realize that they needed to cannibalize their existing business for the future. And and that's why Kodak ended up becoming Kodak. And so yeah. is there a way to identify that for boards and for, for large organizations? Because, you know, I think it was the board was obviously doing what they thought was right back in the 70s or 80s when this digital camera came about. But clearly they made the wrong move. Yeah. So it's interesting, Ted. One thing I've observed is that complacency can set in. If you are a market leader, you can tend to believe because of groupthink and other things that you will continue to be a market leader. And these things are fads. I mean, Blockbuster and Netflix, right? There's a great example. I've been working for a number of years now with an organization. I, I won't say what industry it's in specifically, but it's in a highly competitive market space with a very fragmented economy or industry around it. And the organization has been around for over 100 years. It has had the dominant market share in its industry. But for a number of reasons, that dominance led to the board and even the management team believing that they were insulated from the fact that they are in a commodity. They're in a commodity space. They're in a global market. They're competing against other producers outside of BC. And it led to this kind of false belief that we just keep doing what we're doing and we'll be fine. You know, we've been around for a long time. And what ended up happening to this organization is market share started to decline. The retail channel that they sell to was consolidating rapidly and they didn't really understand that very well. Their industry was fragmenting quite substantially and their margins were dropping. And it really took the advent of a new CEO and just a lot of hard bumps from the the economy, basically, from the market for the organization to wake up and say, okay, just a minute, now we've got to make some changes in the way that we run our business. We have to consolidate. We have, And critically, we have to think about the fact that we sell a commodity and we've got to think about marketing ourselves. What's the differentiation of our business? What is the unique brand story that we have to tell that will break us out from our competitors, that will drive higher margins, and ideally allow us to bring back market share that we've lost? Uh, there was no one thing that turned that organization's attention around, but it really was almost getting to the breaking point. I mean, literally the point where you could have argued this business maybe has a couple of years left before it's done. Okay, well, I mean, that's miraculous. It sounds like it's incremental change is what you're saying, right? In this case, it's been a bit of incremental and a bit of shock therapy. Mm, and, okay. you know, we've seen examples of both. We've seen organizations that um, have pivoted but made incremental change and some that because of various factors have had to go through real shock therapy change 
in order to prevent themselves from going out of business or or some fairly catastrophic fate. So there's no sort of one size fits all story to this stuff. It really comes down to the willingness of people in an organization to recognize the need for change and then to finally step up and do it. So then with regards to change, I see that your organization is a, it says global award-winning B Corp. And so how long have you guys been a B Corp? And I mean, I've known folks that have gone there and, and done that, and it means a lot to them. We at Ballistic Arts haven't really looked into that mm-hmm. quite frankly, but maybe you can share with the audience why that's, that's an important trait to have. I'm happy to, Ted. So just to give you a bit of the backstory, I spent about 15 years on the board of Fairtrade Canada, which is the certification and marketing body for Fairtrade products in Canada. It gave me a tremendous belief in the power of third-party certification so that you don't just you know, make a bunch of claims about what you do. You have someone who can actually verify to the marketplace that what you say you do is what you actually do. And so early on in my time at Realize Strategies, when B Corp was just kind of coming onto the, the radar, I really wanted to start that journey because I felt that we did a lot of things very, very well as an organization, that we did a lot of the right things from a policy, a community perspective, all those sorts of things. But I wanted to have that third-party verification, that kind of, you know, what we used to call the good housekeeping seal of approval. That led us to embark on the journey to become a certified B Corporation. And I think that was in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. So we've been certified for a fairly long time. But we're really proud of it. It's meant a couple things. I would say, honestly, it hasn't translated into a ton of new business for us. What it has done, though, is brought new members to our team. We've actually had people call up and say, hey, I'm looking for a role. And I was researching B Corporations. I found you guys. I really like what you do. Is there an opening for someone with my background? So it's been a bit of a a recruitment tool for us in the first place. And secondly, for us internally, it's really been part of our talent and culture experience because we constantly think about, well, what are we doing with decision making in our organization? What are we doing to support the community? I mean, we're office based, so greenhouse gas emissions, carbon footprint is a little bit different, of course, but we still think about, is there something we can do within you know, what we've got to control? So we're constantly thinking about those areas of certification to say, how do we challenge ourselves to be better than we are now? And we're really proud of that. It just, it's just something we would do for our own personal internal value set. And, you know, sure, we market and say, like, this is some proof that when we say we're a purpose-driven organization you know, we back that up by the fact that we, we try to walk the talk, so to speak. And so, but why did you pick that particular certification? There are these other, you know, good housekeeping seals as, as you call them, but, but was there a particular reason why you picked B Corp? I think what I liked about B Corp the most was first of all, I liked the general rigor of their program. I liked the areas that they looked in uh, because I thought it was quite comprehensive. But what I really liked, I think was the tagline of using business as a force for good. Because that's something that we strongly believe in. So the idea of being a part of a global movement that is trying to change the way business is run and and the way business interacts in the community and saying it's not just about profit, but it's also about what you do with your money and how you make your money. And to me, that was really important, having seen what it meant to go to a coffee cooperative in Brazil, for example, and see what it meant for them to have access to fair trade certification. So a better market access, a better price, something that made a tangible difference in their lives. And so that idea of using the power of the market to do good. 
was really what made me attracted to the B Corp model above all others. Okay. Speaking of attraction, are there any particular books or, or learnings, podcasts that you are attracted to that you use for your day-to-day growth and learning? Uh, my two favorites are Terry O'Reilly's Under the Influence. I've never heard of it. Oh, Terry O'Reilly. So the podcast, so Terry O'Reilly is the marketing guy on CBC. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. I, and I absolutely love Terry O'Reilly's show. The other is um, How I Built This with Guy Raz on NPR. And I love, what I really love about How I Built This is it's a story of entrepreneurs and innovators. So it takes you through all the gory detail of someone who started, you know, Rad Bikes or Ben and Jerry's or CAPTCHA, all these really great iconic organizations. But it takes you through the story of why did this crazy individual decide to start this thing in the first place? And what did they have to go through to get to the point where they had this amazing company, this amazing brand? Uh, so those are two right off the bat that I that uh, are favorites for me. I, I love those kind of books that that talk about you know business growth and, and change and 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 when you have podcasts like that and interviews, that's fantastic. With regards to any particular ideas that you have with where your industry is going. It's a great question, Ted. Um, consulting, uh, professional services is going through, I think, a dramatic period of change. It's, it's already started. The, the question is where it ends. We're seeing increasingly the commodification of some kinds of professional services, which I'm sure you're seeing as well, just by virtue of the fact that the democratizing of the information commons, people can get lots of stuff for free off the internet. We're seeing that there's a kind of hollowing out too. So there are people who are doing the digital nomad life, delivering services as a single professional, and then increasingly larger organizations. And and the you know the boutique seems to be we're lucky we're holding on tight, but there seems to be a bit of a separating there, and also much more of a push towards more specialized, more what one uh, great thinker in consulting called the the in the vault offerings, those almost secret sauce specialized things that you develop and are your own intellectual property. The third big trend is shifting towards uh, being a product-based organization. So, you know, consulting and professional services, traditionally you've got folks with a body of knowledge, they apply it and they do something. Um, what you're seeing more and more now is organizations that are creating proprietary offerings. So that can be a web platform that does like employee experience or it does leadership development or things like that. That's part of the story behind why we launched Realize You because the it was really a move towards saying we've got to be a little bit more engaged in offering a product than the traditional service of consulting. So I think we're going to start to see more and more of that, that firms will develop those kinds of proprietary offerings that they'll license to others to use. Tell us a little bit about Realize You. Realize You is a professional development and training platform, which we just launched a couple of months ago. It was kind of a culmination of a long journey where we had, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Ted. It, um, a lot of leaders that we talked to were saying, you know, I really need to be able to train my managers to think differently in order to help me change in my organization, but I don't know where to send them. You know, and there's a bunch of different areas where I need them trained in, but I need them to not just have those foundational skills. I need them to be trained how to apply those skills in a way that's meaningful to my organization. So 
after a lot of sort of thinking and focus grouping and dialoguing, we launched Realize You to basically fulfill that that unmet need for training that is particularly focused at leaders, organizations that are in that purpose-driven space. So they could be B corporations, they could be nonprofits, they could be cooperatives. It's kind of agnostic on what kind of you know incorporation you have or what your money looks like. But it's really about how do you train people in these organizations that blend money and and purpose to be able to weather the kind of storm and also to thrive. And how do you make sure that that motivation to generate a bottom line, but also to generate an impact is embedded in the DNA of your business? So we've launched it, you know, with a couple of courses, we're working toward what will ultimately be a certificate program, a kind of overarching flagship program that will train you in leadership and management, again, aimed at primarily purpose-driven organizations. So there's still a lot of design work to do, a lot of really, really exciting design work that we're doing right now to think about the next iteration uh, and also how we'll develop the product suite because we're really thinking about it as a, as a product offering rather than just this is some training, this is some learning. So it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting journey over the next year or so. Well, it's always fun, though, when you're coming up with new ideas and new strategies and design. So good on you and I wish you best of luck there. Now, just to wrap this up, we normally want to learn a little bit about our guests and hear a little bit about who you are as a person. We just do this rapid fire round and we ask questions that are a little bit more on the fun side. Are you ready? I am. What's your first job? I was a grocery store clerk in my hometown of London, Ontario. Did you? So you, you bag groceries? Is that what you did? I bag well, bag groceries and stack shelves. Nice. In the old, in, you know, dating myself a little bit. In the old days when you had a pricing gun, you had the little sticky things on the cans. Yeah, so that was what I did. All right. So you you grew up in London, Ontario. So what was the coldest winter you've experienced? The coldest winter I've experienced in my hometown, I think, was probably minus twenty. Was that with wind chill or without wind chill? Uh, with wind chill. All right. I mean, I've been in some colder winters in places like Calgary and Ottawa, but... No, I meant the coldest winter of your life, I guess. The coldest winter I have ever been in? Yeah. Oh, God, that would have been... I think that would have been Calgary. I have very, uh, well, not fond memories, but memories of being in Calgary in January when it was about minus 40-something out. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so are you a cat person, dog person? I've had both. Right now I have a rat terrier and I love my little rat terrier. So right now I'm a dog person. Last charity you supported financially or with your time and why? Last charity I supported with my time and why? Well, I got to think for a second. Uh, the Community Evolution Initiatives, it's a charity I'm on the board of that I've also supported a bit. They're a really great organization that was started by the guy who founded the International Language uh, School Centers. They have a couple of campuses here in Vancouver. It's an organization that works across the world. Uh, its mission is to try to create democratically controlled community-owned businesses. And uh, so the guy who founded it, Paul Zeisman, he put his own personal money into start it. He asked me early on if I would get involved and help him on this crazy mission that he was on. And I just loved his story. I loved his enthusiasm. So I volunteered a lot of my time and, and some money to help along the way. Good job. That's awesome. 
So before we wrap up, is there any other last thoughts that you wanted to provide our listeners? Oh, God, I could provide lots of last thoughts. To, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. So I think what I'd say is, if you're thinking about business, remember that two things, culture does eat strategy for breakfast. And look at the horizon, not at the bottom line, because that's what's going to get you where you want to be. Wise words. All right, John. Well, hey, thank you very much for your time. And thank you to our audience members for tuning in again. That's another great episode of Marketing News Canada. I'm Ted Lau, and this is John Kay signing off. Have a great day, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather.